Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. All of us have fears that we hope will never happen to us or our families. One such fear is that of our children being abused, be it sexually, physically, or emotionally. Sherry Kaplan is the founder and clinical director of the Can't Tell Center, an organization that deals with these problems. Today we want to take a little different twist and talk about the reaction such news has on the child's family, not just the adult's. There will be many overlaps bridging the adult's needs with the child's needs. Ms. Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you solidly suspect or know that abuse has or is happening to a child, it is critical that you act. But, and equally critically, the action must be correct. Speak to authorities on how to best intervene, be it reporting to a governmental child protection agency, the police, a school, or a medical or mental health professional. It is very important. Okay. What's intriguing is you chose the title Can't Tell Center, and we all know that so much of the time these problems are hidden. The organizational name itself captures so much of the problem. Tell me how you got to that name. I got to that name because my children were the victims of these kinds of crimes, of abuse and sexual assault. And when I questioned them why it was that they hadn't shared with me that they were unsafe or they were scared, especially since I did all the things that we're taught to do as parents, teach your children about their body parts, let somebody know if you feel unsafe. But their response to me was they just looked and they said, can't tell, can't tell. And when they would wake up with nightmares in the middle of the night, they would just be rocking back and forth saying, can't tell. And I said, wow, that's really how it happens. You can't tell. And so the organization is Can't Tell Center, and the website is Can't Tell Center, one word, dot com, C-A-N-T-E-L-L-C-E-N-T-E-R dot com. Okay. You are, by training, a clinical social worker. Yes, I am. So you have more than just a parental point of view here. What are some of the typical signs suggesting that a child has been or is being abused? Depending on the abuse, behavioral triggers or signs, as you said, or if there's sexual abuse, there are some physical signs. If there's physical abuse, sometimes there are physical signs as well. So let me start with some of the behaviors that we tend to see. And it's usually the ones that the parents miss first, which is the acting out behavior, where they start being angry and say, things that are really out of character for them. They're extremely irritable or hypersensitive. One of the things that happen when children are traumatized by any kind of abuse is that they reenact their trauma. So sometimes they will be caught doing something to their siblings, like being aggressive towards them. So if you notice that your child is having behaviors that are not of their nature or are past what they would typically do, that would be a red flag to me. If I saw marks on my child's body, like an odd bruise might indicate that they're being pushed around at school or that a family, a friend, a kid might be causing them harm. When a kid is being tormented or emotionally abused, I think you see a lot of the same symptoms. And sexual abuse, you would also see those same symptoms, but you might also see the urinating on themselves during the daytime or defecating on themselves. With all of the abuse, you might also see a wetting of the bed and nightmares. One would assume that there is a difference in the presentation of these symptoms according to the age of the child. That's true. Some of the older children that I see, I want to say like 10 years old and up, we see that they start cutting themselves. And even the younger ones will start picking at their skin. 
we hear a lot now, and rightly so, about bullying. Is bullying just a softer form of abuse, or am I just playing with words? It is not a softer form. I think most things are on a spectrum. So if we said bullying is from zero to 100, then you would say, well, once you get past like 20, you're into the abuse category. So it's a kind of torment. And when it's physically aggressive, then it's clearly in the area of abuse. And when it's psychologically aggressive, I think to the extent to which the receiver of the bullying is tormented is really where you put it in the abuse category. If a parent suspects that abuse is occurring, obviously they have to intervene, and I'd like to talk a little bit later about the appropriate interventions. But one form of preparing for the intervention that I find has rarely occurred, sometimes their own personal reaction is really not the best, that immediate reaction. How should a parent, what emotions in themselves should they look at or control within themselves when they have to deal with an abused child? Big question. It is a big question, and I'd like to answer it from both a personal and from a professional perspective. Please do. Not every person is the same. I would like to just go back and say I forgot to mention the anxiety and the depression that comes up with these kids, and I just wanted to add that. We don't want to miss those symptoms either. When you realize that your children were traumatized on your watch, which is how I see it, a lot of people would say to me, don't you feel guilty? or we don't want you to feel guilty. And I always said, I don't feel guilty, I feel responsible. And what I meant by that is, as a parent, you're there to protect and provide for your children. You have this sense of, I failed at protecting them. And that brings on a lot of shame and a lot of pain and anger towards yourself, not just whoever the abuser is. I think a lot of people have a numbing response whereas other people will break down and other people will do what I call the ostrich effect, where they'll go into denial and stick their head in the sand and pretend it really didn't happen because these kinds of abuse are just so unimaginable. It's very easy for us to say, that's not real. That couldn't have happened. Well, it's not that bad. When you look at some of the emotional abuse, yeah, but they didn't really mean it. That doesn't get it to stop. It doesn't. It doesn't get it to stop. But when it does stop, and it is stopped, you're still left as a parent with feeling your child's pain and then feeling your own pain along with the shame and the guilt of not protecting. And that takes a lot of work to deal with as a parent. And there are things that you need to do as a parent to take care of yourself because your children are going to feed off of your strength or your lack of strength. The statistics indicate that a lot of kids who are abused come from families where the parents have been abused. Sometimes it's random from an outside point. We know that. It's not an absolute corollary that if you were abused, your kids are going to be abused. But it may trigger in the parent the resurrection of their own feelings when they were abused, or it may trigger a need to have a very close look that maybe these parents have inadequate parenting skills. I'm sure that complicates the entire process a thousandfold. Yes, it does. It does, and it's much harder to get a parent who does not accept responsibility to help their child heal. So the parent may have to heal themselves in order to help heal the child. Absolutely, and that process is very similar to what you walk a child through in their healing process, especially if the abuse is similar. Too many times the the identified patient is sent to the therapist with the mandate, go get yourself better, and they can't because the home's not changed. 
And I think what a lot of people don't realize, you have a child who has been abused in some way, shape, or form, and they're not little Mary Sunshine. They have a plethora of feelings. They're acting out different emotions. And as a parent, you have all this empathy for them, perhaps. But if they start behaving in aggressive ways or they start reenacting their traumas, it is it hits your buttons. And even though you're sitting there feeling badly for your child, you land up snapping at your child because you're not healed. It also gives the model to the child of how they see the parent deal with a very real crisis, which really may not be therapeutic in the long run. It may feel good in the short run, but in the long run, not be productive at all. Multifaceted issues here. When you deal with somebody who has been abused, a child, especially a younger child, how much focus do you put on the parent? You sort of walk through what might be, and we're going to use the word typical, what would happen? Walk us through when all of the legal aspects have been taken care of and someone's just coming for treatment. I would see that child probably several times in the first week and I would see the parent for equal time because I need to coach the parent on how to take care of the child and what are trauma symptoms and what are helpful ways in responding to those symptoms when they come up. After that, I usually see the child one to two times a week and the parent an equal amount of time. And the reason that I do that is because parents have never had traumatized children before. They have to deal with their own feelings like we just said earlier, and they have to know what are the most helpful ways to respond to their children when their children are anxious, depressed, angry, acting out cutting themselves, whatever symptoms they may be displaying. Some of them vandalize places or start carrying a weapon or creating weapons. You really need a helpful way to respond to that and not be reactive to it. We tend also to overlook that it can leave a permanent scar with the parent. What's harder, getting the parents to find a place for it or getting the victim to find a place for it? Perhaps it's an equal challenge. I would say if I have at least one parent on board and I can get them to work closely with myself and with their child, then I have a really great shot at helping that kid. If I have to work with the child alone, depending on the support system that child has in addition to the parent and depending on the attachment and the bond that I can create with that kid and getting them involved in other activities outside of the home, it will be harder, but we could still make it happen. What about when the abuser is the known person to the family or maybe another family member? I would think that is very different than the situation when they were abused by a school teacher or, well, it's still not good, but a school teacher, a priest, or a random abuser it must be very different. It is different because it challenges that child's ability to trust in the world and trust themselves and trust other people in the world. One of the challenges that happens when it's somebody you know or somebody that's close to you is that you need distance from your abuser to reestablish your identity and do all the healing and corrective work. So either we are in the woods and we are hunting an animal or it's chasing us. And so that's your fight or flight response. Your brain goes into lockdown because it has to focus on one thing. I either have to run away to save myself or I have to go and kill that animal. So either way, it has to focus on one thing and it has to use all its tools from the past and the future. And so it just loops with all the solutions to kill the animal or run. 
and it goes over and over. So that's where you get like an obsessive quality. The focus has to be very intense on that. If you think in terms of an abused child, whenever they see their abuser, their body would go back into this fight or flight lockdown mode. And if it's in lockdown, it can't take all its information and use all its wisdom and all of its knowledge to heal and be whole again. The person may look for quick and easy mechanisms to give the sensation of undoing the lockdown. Which brings you back to your initial question that you asked me, or what are some of the symptoms? And so I would say yes, in kids who have access to alcohol and drugs and promiscuity, that could be signs. If your child never was that way before or used those things before, that could be a sign that they're covering this up. What about disappointment? A young girl is sexually attacked by her father or a brother, and the male figures in the house are supposed to be the safe male models in the world. So a girl grows up really not thinking that she's worthy of being protected by her dad, who's supposed to be the number one safe harbor. How do you deal with normalizing her own self-image. What do you do to normalize her life again? Another big question. That's when I need a team of people to work with. It helps to have a male and female therapist together. You need a balance of input. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to heal a child. It's not that someone is going to do their soul healing work in my office between me and the parent. It's I am a piece of their healing, and I have had to, for years, farm people out for the other aspects. So I need to bring in positive male role models into this child's life and give them opportunities to have safe relationships, to be able to test out their identity as a more grounded person once they start healing, how can you tell if someone's safe or not safe? You have to challenge the negative beliefs for that child, how they perceive men. This can be a very difficult treatment challenge to put all this together. I would imagine many people don't have access to it, which perpetuates the problem. That's true, because it's not a single clinician solution. It's not all going to be solved in one person's office. It takes a group of clinicians, and I think that when you're traumatized early in life, like three, four, five, six, you're still developing your concepts of the world and the people around you. So with each developmental stage, you have to understand this abuse from a different perspective, because if you were abused before you became a sexual being, once all of the those hormones start flowing, it's very hard to know what to do with that if you're also feeling that men are not safe. You really need to have someone there to help as they're growing through different stages. I have had parents go, well, it's been two years. They should be fine by now, right? It's not that simple. You can get to a certain part of healing where we might help somebody out of the fight or flight mode. We might be able to teach them how to take care of their anxieties how to relate to the triggers differently, but you're still going to have to revisit how you relate to that trauma over and over again throughout the years. Is it more of hating the abuser or more of sadness and the lack of self-respect that you feel that something is wrong with you, otherwise this would not have happened? Where would be the focus? It's okay to hate the abuser or no, we have to just skip that part and build your life in spite of the fact that this happened. 
I'm going to answer the question in two parts. I find that it's very important that you allow a child or a person to fantasize about what they would do to their abuser. And I know that might sound very harsh, but they're living in their bodies, reliving this experience, and they're feeling powerless. Once you feel powerless, that's when your hopelessness comes in. So your brain's going to try to protect you from that in some way, shape, or form. But if you give a child an opportunity to bring the images up of their fantasy of what they would do to this person and then release it and throw it away, a lot of times you can get them to come back to their power in the present moment and you can start releasing anger towards the other person because when you hold on to that anger, you feel powerless for the rest of your life and you're living with your feelings of hopelessness and powerlessness and it's no longer the abuse. It becomes who you are and that's why you have to recreate an identity separate from the abuse. So this is very much a psychotherapeutic process, old-fashioned, solid psychotherapy. It is. Some of it is just cognitive behavioral therapy, and some of it is using other modalities that can integrate the many parts of our, like rituals in our life that have been very healing through different cultures and throughout the world. Medication, I think, is very important when a brain has been locked up and jammed up that a person can't function. Early on, sometimes medications can be helpful to prevent damage. You have to really balance both. I worked with a lady many years ago who was abused as a young teenager. She did very well on the whole, I must say. She worked at it very hard, and it took her years to find places for all the things that happened. She met a guy. It was a very good relationship, very understanding, and all the good things. And one night in the midst of intimacy, she got up and went running down the hall. He thought he hurt her. No, unbeknownst to him, he said something to her exactly the same way that the abuser did some 10 or 15 years before, and it replayed all the videotapes. Now, because she was a little bit more mature, the relationship was established, they talked it out, and they were able to put some, the word closure sounds so trite sometimes to use it, but she was able to put it in perspective. You have to prepare for what could happen in the future in similar situations because we can't control everything in the future. We can't put them into a bubble. A young lady who was probably 25 years old, date rape, her family wanted to put her into a bubble forever, not resolving anything. We have to teach them to survive. Do you see this pattern? Absolutely. And I have to say, being a parent too, that is the most human reaction you can have is I'm going to protect my child for the rest of their life because your anxiety is so through the roof. You don't want anyone else to have access to hurt them. That's a very genuine reaction to the situation. And then you, as a parent or as family members, need to look at that and say, how is this helpful? So when I look at people who are traumatized by abuse of any kind, I look at what tools do they need to be successful at feeling empowered in their life. It's across the board what we all need. It's just that you have to do it in more extremes with people who have been abused. You have to establish an identity as somebody who has power in your life. So how do you do that? Well, you have to be able to protect and defend yourself. 
So what kinds of things will give you an idea of how you can protect and defend yourself? I came up with Krav Maga, which is Israeli self-defense. And the reason I did is because the particular movements that they do are really built to go with your natural response to being attacked. We found that when we did this with a group of kids, it was very empowering. It didn't make them more aggressive. It just made them more confident. And a lot of these kids who are abused and people who are abused disconnect from their bodies as a way to protect themselves from feeling anything. When we first started doing Krav Maga, especially with the girls who had been sexually abused, and we're talking about 15 to 17-year-olds, it was very hard to get them to punch. They could kick, but punching was very challenging for them. It was uncomfortable because it reminded them of their abuser. So if you think of how much power is in being able to use hands and arms, even when you look at art therapy, if somebody draws arms in a picture and hands, you know that they feel a sense of power. It was a very interesting thing to note so that when I send kids out, whether it's Taekwondo or any other martial arts, I do share with them. I know that certain moves might be challenging for you. I just want you to breathe and help yourself through it because you have to be able to acknowledge he might come up against these glitches if we're not there to monitor at all. So one of the things that we do is teach them how to protect and defend themselves. The other thing that we teach kids how to do is how to connect with their body sensations and their feelings. And we use different kinds of theater exercises to get them to identify what they feel because a lot of times people disconnect from all of their feelings. So getting them reconnected in their bodies and having them live there as opposed to from the neck up, which is where they're stuck with all of the images and the thoughts or avoiding them. We tend to think that the abuse is more against girls. It's not. It may not be as frequently uh, against guys, but the emotional and physical abuse can certainly be against guys. But the sexual is very real, and all we have to do is look at what's happened recently in Pennsylvania to see that a lot of these kids being forced into activities that are not normal and not appropriate, and certainly by what might be their heroes. Any difference between the psychology, the treatment of a teenage boy versus a teenage girl? Only in terms of their identity, having to be reestablished being more of the masculine who they are as men versus who women are as women. It is the same healing process. It's just individual issues. Everyone's their own individual, so you don't do all work the same. There are some people who are very uncomfortable doing certain things, in which case, like we had somebody who was abused in a manner that using movement and drumming was way too triggering. So therefore, we might have to start with something that was a a bit easier for them in terms of expressing themselves. I wouldn't say it's different for boys than girls other than if there are certain gender issues. But I I also want to bring up that the lesbian and gay community and transgender community are big victims of abuse. In many ways. In, In many, many ways. So we had some people who were gay or lesbian in our group as well. It was the same treatment process for everybody. Again, you tailor it to each individual. They still need to learn the same tools. This can be so confusing to a teenager. They're coming into adulthood. They're finding that they're not straight heterosexual, and then they're dealing with the psychological aspects, social aspects of being gay. Unfortunately, this teenage group, highest rate of suicides. 
Right. I was interviewed from Princeton Radio about the young gentleman who unfortunately committed suicide after being videotaped. Mm -hmm. It is such a horror in our society that we need to really work on stopping the cycle of this kind of suicide and violence. And I believe that the way that you do that is by treating victims. And when you treat victims more and more, you chip away at the people who can become perpetrators because part of abuse and the cycle of abuse is once you're abused, you are either going to continue without any intervention. If you have no intervention at all, most people will either continue to be victims or go on to being abusers as a way to adapt or cope with the abuse itself. It raises an interesting question. You and I are talking about some relatively early intervention, ideally. A lot of times intervention doesn't occur until adulthood or that something happens when they're 30 or 40 years old and the good psychotherapist says, and by the way, have you had any problems with abuse? And it comes up in the course of a good evaluation and it says, oh my God, yes. And it opens a door. Is it harder to fix them when they're older? Should we sometimes leave the door closed? This is a point of endless discussion. I'd love your thoughts on that. I think it is harder to fix when someone's older. My daughter was sexually assaulted, tied up, beaten, and almost killed. It was right before her third birthday. I always ask her if I have permission to share if I think that it would be helpful to someone who's listening. To me, she was what I call a typical baby. Like if you pick up any parenting book, she's a textbook kid. She'll respond to any parenting. After she was assaulted, the process when you were saying that teenagers, it must be so confusing. I watch it in my daughter where she's starting to, she's now seven. So she's aware of boys are kissing. She sees the whole iCarly thing and everyone wants to date. And her frame of reference is, I'm married to chocolate. I'm never getting married. I am staying at home and living with my mommy for the rest of my life. And that's where she's safe. And when she sees relationships, she classifies them. She's actually more comfortable seeing gentle people. She sees the world from very different glasses. It's who's safe and who's not safe. She's fine. She won't have any triggers. And then once every three months, she'll go through a week of nightmares. You can actually see she's developmentally reprocessing what happened to her. And by giving her an opportunity to share her nightmares, by giving her an opportunity to talk about what's happening, I can then share with her, where are you at today? What are you doing in your world today? Who's safe in your world today? What's going on in your life today that makes you feel strong and brave? And we're able to reframe it so we can pull on the positives that are going on in her tools. As she continues to grow, she continues to get the input that says, yes, this happened to me, but I am safe and okay today. This is what is going on, and these are the choices that I'm making to create a powerful life. There's a lot of people out there who don't realize that what they're going through is normal when you go through trauma, and people need to reach out and get the help they need. There is so much to be discussed on this topic, and I greatly appreciate your, your honesty. I, I feel for what you and your family have gone through. There are some things that are just not easy. But they are challenges, and we work around them, and from that, we grow. Shari Kaplan is the founder and clinical director of the Can't Tell Center. And I really must say that on one of your business cards is the little motto which says, turning silence into empowerment. That captures it all. Thank you so much for being with us, and we wish you well. Thank you. Thank you so much.